Whoa, heaven came down tonight. The power of the presence of God. My goodness. Nothing like engaging with our God. And can you imagine? This is what we are experiencing now, and we're on a, we're on a cursed planet. Can you imagine what heaven and glory is going to be like? Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you, Nicole and Ruth, and thank all of you tonight for a wonderful time of worship. Exodus chapter 27 tonight as we continue our series in the book of Exodus. Remember, the tabernacle and the description, the design and all of that takes up almost one-third of the book of Exodus. It is something that God emphasizes more than anything else. It is his place where he will meet with his people. It is very sacred to him, very significant to him, very special to him, as it should be to us even today. The place where God meets with us should be held in high regard, not because of the place itself, but because God's presence dwells there, just as it did in the tabernacle. And remember, everything that God is describing about this place is a reflection of him, just like your home. The colors, the furnishings, everything in your home is a reflection of you. Everything in the tabernacle is a reflection of God. It says something to us about our God. And tonight, this chapter divides very nicely into three sections. In the first eight verses, we're going to talk about the altar in the tabernacle. In verses 9 through uh, 19, the courtyard of the tabernacle. And finally, verses 20 and 21, the light, the lampstand in the tabernacle. Let's remember something, too. I shared this last week. As you move further out from the center, from the most holy place or the holy of holies to then the holy place where the lampstand and the bread of presence is, to then you come out to the outer courtyard where the brazen or bronze altar that we're going to talk about tonight is. As you move from the center out, the materials become less precious and the structure less complex. Says something about our God. Notice in verse 1, you are to make the altar of acacia wood. And God begins to describe the length, the width, and all of that about the altar. Why is the altar so significant? And again, this is known, you will see it called different things throughout the Old Testament. It's called at times the bronze altar, because it's made of bronze. It's called the brazen altar. It's called the altar of sacrifice. Here it's simply called the altar. Why is the altar so significant? Because God was teaching his people throughout the Old Testament that they could not have a relationship with him apart from substitutionary sacrifice that was pleasing to him. There had to be sacrifice. There had to be bloodshed. There had to be the giving of life. There had to be a substitute. Why? Because he is a holy God. We sang about him tonight in that way. The altar was therefore a place of sacrifice as well as worship. 
We talked about this in the book of Genesis. Everywhere Abraham traveled, he would build an altar. It was a place where he sacrificed, yes, but it was also a place where he worshiped God because it was the idea that it was through sacrifice that one could approach God and have a relationship and an engagement with God. But let's remember something about this altar that would sit in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Literally every day, there was so much activity going on in that courtyard. Every day, hundreds of worshipers would come with their sacrifices. And they would give those sacrifices to the priests. And the priests would slaughter those sacrifices and smear the blood on the horns of the altar. We'll talk about that in a moment. Laying the the, the animal on the altar itself, and then it was consumed by the fire. They would obviously have to take the, the leftover coals and all of that, and it was a constant work in motion. And you can imagine the sweat and the energy and the effort that all these people who were worshiping God were giving every day as they worshiped God. The place of the tabernacle where worship was centered for God, let's also be reminded, because of the animal sacrifices, it was a messy place, it was a dirty place, it was a smelly place, it was a bloody place. I think sometimes as Christians, we need to remember something. You know, we try to keep everything, you know, so clean and and prim and proper at times when it comes between us and our God. And what God is saying is, it can't stay that way if you're going to have a relationship with me. Some things are going to have to get messed up. Sometimes I got to do that. And we also have to remember that that also is a reminder to us that our God, in order to have a relationship and fellowship with us, is so willing to get messy and dirty and smelly and bloody. He doesn't mind it. He doesn't mind the yuck. So often we're thinking, oh, God doesn't want to get involved. No, exactly the opposite. God, from the very beginning, has said, I am willing to come down and get whatever messy I need to in order to have a relationship with you. So whatever mess right now is in your life or somebody else's, whatever smelly, dirty, bloody stuff is going on, invite God into it because he's more than capable of coming right into all of it and dealing with it and bringing us closer to him through it. I mean, I know about you, and in fact, Nicole and I, we've talked about this. I'm so glad I was born when I was. I I don't think I would have been fit for that age. I would have done what I had to do, obviously, but my goodness. Even the priests were just covered in blood every day. I mean, it, it, it was stinky, it was smelly, the stench, that, that's why we're going to, later on, that's why God also provided altars of incense to try to counteract the terrible smell that would be there through the slaughter of animals and the, the smell of blood. You all know what that smells like. That's not pleasant. And yet, what is God saying? I'm holy. This has to happen in order for you to have a relationship with me. Something has to lose its life and sacrifice itself. And so obviously, it's pointing towards who? Jesus. 
And Jesus certainly was willing to get messy and dirty and bloody and smelly for us. You think about what he looked like on the cross as he was hanging there. The Bible says he didn't even look human. He was slaughtered. He was cut wide open because he wanted to have a relationship with us because he loved us that much. Notice in verse 2, you are to make four horns on the four corners of this altar. Horns always symbolize power in the Bible. Animals that have horns, it is symbolic of their power. And so one of the things that God is showing here is that there's going to be power when the blood is applied to those horns because the priest would literally take the blood from the animal and smear it on the horns. I think that's why it's very appropriate, that old hymn, there's power in the blood. There was power in that blood from God's perspective. Just as there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. For we were redeemed not with corruptible things like silver and gold from our vain manner of life, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ we were redeemed. The bodies of the sacrificial animals were tied to the horns of those altars so that they could stay in place and be consumed. The worshiper could at times also, when the altar cooled off, when it wasn't being used, could literally lay hold of those horns as a refuge. Think about that. Where were the people of God going for refuge? To the altar. Laying hold of the horn to say, God, it's only through me having a relationship with you that's provided through these sacrifices. That's my refuge, God. You're my refuge. That's why Jesus is pictured just like the Ark of Noah or any other refuge in the Bible that's given. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are set safely on high. God is a refuge for his people. We saw this last week when we talked about how God instructed them to use weather-resistant materials to cover the tabernacle, to also not only keep the sun and the heat out, but to keep the moisture and the rain out as well so that when the people came inside, they could be protected. God had all the contingencies planned. Notice in verse 3, there were these fire pans to carry the hot coals back and forth from the altar as well. And then in verse 6, we are reminded that they are to make poles for the altar. Why? Again, because everything about the tabernacle had to be movable. It had to be portable. Every furnishing had to be that way, and the tabernacle itself, it had to stay for several months in one spot, and then they had to be able to pack it up, if you will, and move it to their next location. Why? Because God was always going to move with his people and dwell with them. So they had to have poles to carry everything from location to location. In verse 8, Moses says, you are to make the altar hollow out of boards just as it was shown you on the mountain, so they must make it. I love that word shown. Who showed it to them? God. The word in the Hebrew means to be able to see something with God's help. I love that. God still wants us to live that way today. That, that you and I can see things that we could never see 
in any other way except with God. With God, we can see what we could never see on our own. We can see further. We can see deeper. That's even how we get things out of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit gives us eyes to be able to read the Word and study the Word and be able to see things that we could never see on our own, which is why he's our ultimate teacher. What is it that God is trying to show us right now that we cannot see apart from him? What is God showing us right now in our life? What's he want us to see? But here's, for me, the most precious thing. This altar, again, represented the only way these Israelites could ever have an opportunity to have any kind of relationship with God. It was the altar. So keep your finger there and go over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Hebrews, chapter 13. And look at verse 10. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says to us as New Testament Christians. We have an altar. Who's our altar? Jesus. The sacrifice of Christ is our altar. And notice he says, those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat or partake. Because those Old Testament sacrifices mean nothing anymore. They did at one time. But not now. Now that Christ has come, if people are still holding on to the Old Testament sacrificial system, then they have no right to eat and partake of Christ. One must fully embrace Christ and feed upon him. Or notice verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood the high priest brings into the sanctuary as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, to sanctify the people by his own blood, Jesus also suffered outside the camp, outside the walls of Jerusalem. We must go out to him then outside the camp, bearing the abuse that he experienced. For we, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name. We have an altar, folks. Aren't you glad that we don't have to bring animals every day and offer them as sacrifices for our sin, but we have a once and for all sacrifice. His name is Jesus, and he has taken care of our sin from the past, present, and future, and he's our perfect sacrifice. We have an altar. We have an altar. There's another altar I'd like to direct your attention to. Go back to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12. Look at verse 1. The culmination of this great book of Romans, 11 chapters, Paul has taught them the great doctrines of the faith justification, sanctification, glorification, all of it culminating then and coming to this chapter and beyond. And basically he's saying, therefore, based on everything that I've said to you up to this point, 
I am exhorting all of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God to present your body as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your what? Reasonable service. There's another altar. It's the altar of consecration that every one of us as Christians is called to. We are called to willingly lay our lives on the altar and let God consume our lives for his glory and for others' good. Now, here's only one problem. There's a difference between this altar of consecration for us and the altar that the animals were on in the courtyard of the tabernacle. There, they were dead, and they were tied to the horns, and they couldn't move. See, the problem in Romans 12:1 is with a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice can crawl off the altar. And that's what happens sometimes in our life. Sometimes we, we put ourselves on, on that altar and we say, God, I'm yours. Do with my life whatever you want to do. God, consume me for your glory. But then there's moments of our life where we want things our way and we want to do our own thing and whatever, and we crawl off that altar. And sometimes we have to recommit and crawl back up there and go, God, I'm yours again. Because again, that's, that's sort of the problem with a living sacrifice. Living sacrifices can move unlike the animals in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Well, back to Exodus chapter 27. We've talked about the altar. Let's talk about the courtyard, beginning in verse 9. You are to make the courtyard of the tabernacle, this special space and sacred space of God and his people. And, and here's the dimensions. Here's how you are to make it and all of that. But here's what I want to point out again. The courtyard of the tabernacle was big enough to accommodate the worshipers, but again, small enough to be portable. It was the place of worship where the people of God could gather. Now, unlike today, let me say this. To give you an idea, look at the, look at the size of this auditorium. This auditorium would approximately be the same size as the entire tabernacle. So you would have the Holy of Holies, then you would have the holy place outside of that. So the Holy of Holies would just be this small little box where the Ark of the Covenant was on one side of the tabernacle. Then you would move out, and then you would have the holy place where the lampstand was and where the altar of incense was and the bread of presence. And then you would come out into the larger courtyard, but even the courtyard was no bigger than this entire auditorium where the brazen or bronze altar was as well. So the difference between how people worshiped in the tabernacle age compared to how we worship today is they worshiped at the tabernacle, not in the tabernacle. Today, we come into the house of God and we're inside. In those days, they weren't. There was no room. Remember, the Israelites were about 2 million people at this point. They couldn't all fit inside the tabernacle. And again, one of the reasons why God made it that way was so that it would be portable, so that it wouldn't be so big that it couldn't be moved. 
but it also reflected the fact that God isn't in about being big. God sometimes can do great things in very small packages. So the people would surround the courtyard of the tabernacle and worship at the courtyard. And again, one of the things that always would strike them is in those days, there's separation between us and God because there's God over there in the holy place and we can't even see it. See, one of the things to try to help us to understand their perspective is once they built that and once they had established that most holy place, the Holy of Holies, no Israelite except the high priest ever saw what that looked like. That was always shrouded in mystery. Nobody could just walk in there. They'd be dead. The closest they could get to God was outside the courtyard of the tabernacle. So there was always that idea that there was separation. And that's why Paul really you know, strikes home on this to the New Testament Christians, again, to remind us of the privilege that we have today that they didn't have back then when he said, when Christ died, he tore down the middle wall of partition between us and God. And that's why when the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, the way into God and into his very presence and to go near to him was wide open now. It was never that way in the tabernacle time. There was always a reminder that there's distance between me and God because of my sin. And the only way I can relate at all to God is through this sacrifice that I am bringing to him. That's how he will relate to me in this time. But I also want to remind us of this. The courtyard was a special place like our house right here is. Because when the people would gather to worship, they would do much the same thing that we do today. There would be times of praises and choirs would be singing and there would be great worship songs sung around the courtyard of the tabernacle. There were prayers going up around the courtyard of the tabernacle and there was the teaching of the word of God done around the court of the tabernacle. Again, much like it is today, not much has changed in that respect. But when you think about the courtyard of the tabernacle, and then if you go up to verse 16, it's referred to also the one entrance into the courtyard because there is only one entrance into the courtyard of the tabernacle as the gate of the courtyard. I want you to keep the word court and the word gate in mind and keep your finger in Exodus 27 and go to the book of Psalms to Psalm 100 for a moment and see now by knowing that if this psalm doesn't hit you a little bit differently maybe in knowing the courtyard of the tabernacle and how they would sing this particular psalm around the courtyard. Shout out praises to the Lord all the earth. Can you hear them? Worship the Lord with joy. Enter his presence with joyful singing. Acknowledge or know that the Lord alone is God. He made us and we belong to him. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. 
Give him thanks, praise his name, for the Lord is good. His loyal love endures, and he is faithful throughout all generations. The gates, the courts, and you see that in the tabernacle. You see that in the temple. And we need to have that same attitude here. We may not have gates and courts, but every time we pull up our car here in the parking lot of the oasis, and we get out of our car, and we walk through those doors, we should think of Psalm 100. Enter his courts with praise and his gates with thanksgiving. Let the name of the Lord be praised. So hopefully that psalm will maybe ring a little bit differently to you based upon the courtyard of even the tabernacle. And then back to Exodus 27, we'll close with these verses, verses 20 and 21. You are to command the Israelites that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps will burn regularly or continually. In the tent of meeting, outside the curtain that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord. That is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for generations to come. Something I want us to remember. The moment you would walk through the gate of the tabernacle, a whole new world of light was open to you. It was like you went from the darkness into the light. I love that. We see that in our lives. We can maybe experience darkness out there, but when we come into the house of God, there's light here, because God's here. And God wants to light up our lives. He has already translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. He loves. And in Jesus, there is nothing but light. Notice that the lamp is to burn continually or regularly, the end of verse 21. Why? Because God never sleeps or never slumbers. See, the lamp visibly reminded the people of the light of God's presence, and his presence was always to be symbolically present with his people. Never go out. I love that. God never wanted the lamps to lose their fire. Notice that these lamps were supplied by the purest of oil, verse 20. The very best. And something I learned very interestingly is that when they pressed the olives... You wouldn't get the best, highest quality of oil by pressing the olives too hard. If you smashed the olives, it would lessen the quality and purity of the oil. The olives have to be pressed very gently but firmly in order to get the best oil out of them. Interesting picture, isn't it? And then notice in verse 21, again, God uses this phrase, in the tent of meeting. Why does he use that over and over again? Because he wants to, again, impress upon the readers and even upon us. This is the place that I have designated where I will meet with my people. It's important to me 
that I meet with you, that I have fellowship with you, that I dwell with you. And these lights, this lamp, remember, this lampstand had seven, in a sense, sections to it. It was made, it says back in chapter 25, verse 39, with 75 pounds of pure gold. This lampstand with the seven sections, I mean, can you imagine the light that come off of that with the purest of oil? But here's the thing. How was this all to be kept up? It was the responsibility of the priests, the spiritual leaders of Israel, that every morning, what was their first responsibility before anything else? The first thing the priests would do when they entered the tabernacle was go right to the lampstand. And what they would do first is trim all the wicks. Trim all the wicks. That was a lot of wicks that they had to trim. And then they had to make sure that the supply of pure oil was there for every one of the lamps. Every morning, that was their first responsibility before they did anything else. Trim the wicks and make sure that the supply of oil was adequate for the day until the next morning. Remember something, this is good for us. Oil always is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And so one of the great pictures we have here is that you and I cannot live properly, minister properly, serve properly without a continual flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which is why Paul said to all New Testament Christians, be filled with the Spirit. There is to be a continual supply of the Holy Spirit, and if you will, the oil, the energy, the enablement that the Holy Spirit and he alone can bring into our lives so that we can properly serve him. And part of our responsibility, and especially me as the pastor of this church, along with other leaders, is we are responsible to be create an environment where the light of God is always there, where the Spirit is not quenched or grieved so that the Spirit of God can move and so that, that our ministry is kept in a, in a sense simplistic and the wicks of our ministry is trimmed back so that God can be seen above everything else. That is our responsibility like the priests in the tabernacle time. And first of all, then, that means that we have a responsibility every day as spiritual leaders to make sure that our personal wicks are trimmed, if you will, and that we are allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through us. We need to be a church where the Holy Spirit is let loose. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's the way it was in the tabernacle. God was saying to his people, this continual light is showing you the light, the energy, the power of the Holy Spirit that is continually shining. The power of my presence. And we certainly experienced that during our time of worship tonight. Then notice this. Very important, verse 21. I'll wrap it up in just a moment. 
in the tenant meeting outside the curtain is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord. This word, these words, arrange it, are very significant. It not only means to set everything in order. In other words, again, make sure all the oil's there, that the wicks are trimmed and all of that. It was a phrase that was used about contending in battle. Whoa! See what God's saying? He's saying even setting everything in order for worship is going to be a battlefield, a battleground. In a sense, he's saying to us, you trying to live for me and worshiping me, it's going to be a battlefield and a battleground. You've got to be willing to fight. Because the enemy, your flesh, the world, everything is going to be against you worshiping me. So you have to realize that worship is going to be warfare. It's going to be a battle. And so as we try to trim our wicks and light our lamps with the power of the Holy Spirit in his presence, there's going to be a battle happening. And that same thing is true in our church. My goodness, right now we're under attack in so many ways and in so many areas. So many folks in our church right now dealing with health issues and cancer and all of that, and we've got people dealing with family issues and emotional issues and spiritual challenges and whatever. It's like the devil's throwing everything he can at us. Well, let me tell you, based upon, you know, what we've even worshipped about tonight, God has already overcome. Jesus has overcome. And Jesus will prevail. And he is building this church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail. And then Moses ends with this. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for generations to come. That speaks to us about the fact that God wants to build into our lives that which lasts. God isn't about doing something temporary. God wants to do in our church those things that last. He wants to do in our lives those lasting things, those things that stick. That's who our God is. Everything God works for, he works from eternity. That's his perspective. So again, when we study the altar, when we study the courtyard, when we study the light within the tabernacle, we learn about our God. Because all of it reflects the glory of our God. I'm going to just go for two more minutes, but if you just leave Exodus, go over once again to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. I'm in Hebrews a lot, right? I know. I spoke, had the privilege of speaking to the ladies out of the book of Hebrews the other day. Just a real quick note, since many of you weren't there, it's Pastor Jeff's opinion that the book of Hebrews was written by a woman. Just going to say that out loud. All right, Hebrews chapter 10. Let's begin in verse 1. Follow along with me. This is good stuff, folks. This ties right in with the tabernacle and yet shows us how much better we have it through Jesus. For the law possesses a shadow of the good things to come, but not the reality itself and is therefore completely unable by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year to perfect those who come to worship. For otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? 
since the worshipers would have been purified once for all and so have no further consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is reminder of sins year after year. For the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. So when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Whole burnt offerings and sin offerings you took no delight in. Then I said, here I am, Father. I have come and is written of me in the scroll of the book to do your will, O God. When he says above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor did you take delight in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he says, here I am. I have come to do your will. He does away with the first to establish the second. Something new, something better, something unprecedented, something fresh. By his will, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands day after day serving and offering the same sacrifices again and again and again. Sacrifices that can never take away sins. They cover but not take away. But when this priest had offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, where he is now waiting until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are made holy. Father, we thank you tonight that we have an altar, that we have a Savior who has perfected us for all time with his one sufficient sacrifice. God, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God laid down his life so that we could be redeemed and forgiven and set free for all time. God, we thank you for that. We thank you that we can worship you forever and ever for the sacrifice that you have made for us on our behalf, a sacrifice that we don't deserve, but one that you willingly give to us out of your great love and mercy on our behalf. So God, may our hearts be filled tonight as we've been in your presence, as we've experienced a powerful and profound time of worship, and as we've been in your house, God, to hear your word. Thank you, God, for this time tonight. May we come back Sunday, entering your gates and courts with praise once again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.